guests, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. You lucky devil. You have found America's premier true crime podcast and radio program, True Crime Uncensored, produced by Magic Matt Allen. I'm the legendary Burl Bear, that man right there. That's our fact checker, Mark C.G. Boyer. Hello. And joining us on the telephone, a man who I believe was Pierce Brosnan's stuntman in most of the James Bond movies, Lee Goldberg. Hi, Hi Lee. I've got nothing to do with true crime. I think I've wandered in here by accident. <laughs> no, well, there's a, there is a direct link. You did read my at least one or two of my true crime books, so that qualifies you. And I've, I've committed some crimes for which I've not been convicted <laughs> yeah. or, or suspected. Does that count? Yeah, and that no, does. But, um... This show is a true crime. <laughs> this show is Yeah, 13 years we've been doing this show, Lee, and we haven't improved it one bit. We just... Well, of course we have. I'm here. Yeah, yeah, I oh, guess that counts. No, there is a true crime link. Your uh, your latest, greatest which book, which uh, we'll have you tell us all about, Bone Canyon, the second in your Eve Ronan series. Am I correct? That's correct. You and I both came to a realization uh, a few years ago. We were making a lot of money for other people. <laughs> uh, although making some for ourselves. But when you're writing books that someone else owns the character, it does put a slight bit of restriction on you. Yes, but there are some other benefits too. Sometimes they balance out. But I have made a vow to myself, which I, I might break if you wave enough money under my nose, that <laughs> I'm not going to write anything that I don't own. I have Lee, Lee is, uh, if you read the... Uh, the kind of biographical information, either on his website or on ours, you know he's done Diagnosis Murder books and the series, as well as Monk. And what was the one with uh, the giant uh, kung fu guy? Oh, that was Sammy Hong. Yeah. Sammy Hong? Yeah. Yeah, I like that one. I also like the one uh, Love and Curses, which was originally, what, She-Wolf of London? Yeah, yeah. I got a big kick out of that one. Especially, <laughs> I might digress here. You did an episode on uh, that where she had to work as a waitress uh, in the episode. Yes, it was our final episode. And <laughs> the reason you had her play a waitress in that was episode? Because she was such a god-awful pain in the ass. And a lot of her behavior were the reason why we were facing imminent cancellation. So... Um, I wrote an episode. She was a waitress when we cast her as the lead in the series. And so when she was back in the waitress uniform, the only time I've ever been a true bastard, I went up to her and said, how's it feel to be back in that waitress uniform? Because that's where you're going to be on Monday. We've been canceled. <laughs> God, you're cruel. Uh, that's, that's the meanest I've ever been. It's not something I'm particularly proud of, but um, God, she, uh, in many ways she doomed that show. It was just... Unnecessary. It was, it was a fun show. I really enjoyed it. The other one I liked is what, You and Me, Kid? Oh, yeah. That was a, a show that only aired in the U.K. and Canada and um, in Europe. I don't think it's ever been shown here in the United States. So you can find episodes now on YouTube. Yeah, I would recommend people do that. Will you just give them a quick, uh, quick introduction to what that the, show was about? The show about? was called, had one of the worst titles in television history. It was called Stick With Me, Kid. And it was about this... Uh, 10-year-old kid who's a, a deductive genius, you know, on the level of Sherlock Holmes, but no one will listen to him because he's a kid. So he finds this out-of-work, self-involved actor who starred in six episodes of a busted television detective show to be his front, to be the great detective Grant Logan. 
Mm-hmm. And, and he, Grant has an earpiece in his ear, and, and the kid feeds him all of his deductions and stuff. But the guy is an actor, so he's always improvising. So he'd be at the scene of a crime and say, The killer is Burl Bear! And then the, yeah. the 10-year-old would say, Oh, no, it's, it's Ezra Jones. Oh, Ezra Jones? <laughs> uh, wasn't that, the, you know, the thinly lined plot of... Um Stephanie Zimbalist and Pierce Brosnan. Well, that's sort of the same. I mean, and I, and I must admit, I, I, I have a connection to Remington Steel. Michael Gleason, who created the show, was my mentor. And he and I worked together on a very short-lived ser- series called um, Murphy's Law. And then he worked on martial law with me, and I worked with him on diagnosis murder and vice versa. And um, in Remington Steel, Stephanie Zimbalist plays a woman who's not taken seriously as a detective because she's a woman. Of course, that's now changed, but at the time, she had a male front, and she created a fictional character named Remington Steele who didn't exist, who was always out on on, a, on assignment or whatever. But she was investigating a jewel robbery and, and, and catches a thief in the act, and as soon as the cops come in, he says, I'm Remington Steele. <laughs> <laughs> and so now she's stuck with this guy who's a thief and a con man, he, you know, he's Simon Templar without the, the heart of gold, uh, who, who she can't say isn't Remington Steele without destroying her own reputation. Right. Of course, by the end of the series, he becomes a pretty good detective himself, and they fall in love. I think they even get married in the final season, but um, it has some similarities to Remington Steele. And well done, too. Very enjoyable. I like Murphy's Law, too. And that was a show that was based on a series of novels by a guy named Warren Murphy. Oddly enough, Novels with two different names. It started as a series called Digger with one publisher, and when the publisher dropped the series, he started with another publisher and he called it Trace. Just changed the characters' names. That's why the series had this strange credit based on the Digger and Trace novels by Warren Murphy. But to further complicate it, the creator of the show, Lee David Zlotoff, liked Warren Murphy so much, he based the character on Murphy himself and named the show Murphy's Law. And then Lee David Zlotoff didn't stick around for the series. Michael Gleason picked it up and uh, hired me and, and my uh, then-writing partner, William Rabkin, to write the show. And it was great fun. George Siegel played the insurance investigator, um, drunken insurance investigator who solves crime, sort of a Columbo kind of guy, who was also involved in a uh, relationship with a very young Asian model. Uh, it's a strange... It was that's, a strange that's good. Show. I recommend that. Um, if you insist. <laughs> we'll find one for Mark. Now, um, George Papard, uh, wasn't he uh, a uh, specialized insurance investigator? Yeah, yeah, Banachek. Banachek. I I really like that show. There's a great Simpsons spoof of Banachek they did two years ago called Manachek. <laughs> and they used the theme music. They spoofed the opening titles. They, they did an amazing job. The whole episode was a spoof of Banachek. Even used the font that they used on the TV series. <laughs> You also did that. The, guy, the guy who did the voice for uh, Manichek was, um, oh, I can't think of the actor's name, but he stars in, as a hitman Barry on Showtime, former SNL guy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever. Uh, John Lovitz? Oh, sorry. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's Yeah, the, that's it. Yeah. That's <laughs> Morgan um, Fairchild. I loved when uh, you were doing Diagnosis Murder. You brought Mannix in. I did. That was great. What, what, pro, what, in the middle of the night, <laughs> in what fever dream prompted you to do that? What prompted me to do that? Um, oddly enough, they were bringing back Andy Griffith as Matlock for a special sweeps episode. And Matlock had only been off 
like 90 minutes. It made no sense why they were bringing back Matlock. And I said, if you're going to bring back an old TV show, bring back Mannix you know, in his plaid jacket and, and his ridiculous uh, cars and, and getting shot in the arm all the time. And, and I managed to sell the network on that idea, but we took it one step further. We used an episode from 25 years earlier for flashbacks and brought back the same cast from that episode wow. uh, in present day and tied the two episodes together. So we were able to have footage from the original Mannix in contrast with, with Mannix today. And, and the Mannix today is older. He's having heart problems. <laughs> Dr. Mark Sloan is his doctor who's patched up his arm like so many times he wants to put Velcro there instead of skin. Uh, it was a lot of fun. It got huge ratings. It was, uh, it was a dream come true to write, uh, to write that Mannix episode. And it's funny, uh, Burl's sister, my mom, uh, Jan Curran, had a crush on Mike Connors and insisted on coming to the set, and so did uh, Burl's mom. Insisted <laughs> <laughs> on coming to the set to hang out with Mike Connors, and uh, he was very sweet to them. Very, very nice. Yeah. So, uh, did I hear correctly um, that you and Burl are acquainted more than just as authors? Yes, yes, he's my nephew. Ah, so is his brother. Nepotism on the show. That's Burl. right. We you should fool around here. We get right down to it. I uh, I have been a, a, a strong supporter of Lee's literary efforts ever since childhood. His childhood, not mine. That's right. <laughs> we're, we're 15 years apart in age, which lets you know how old I am. <clears throat> mm. uh, but he's, been, he's done quite well for himself. I especially uh, liked uh, uh, the Jury series, which has been re-released by a very daring publishing company. Yeah, my own. Um, but the, the jury series were books I wrote when I was uh, 18 years old. I was in college, and uh, I had a professor who wrote those men's action-adventure series. Well, I, should, I take it back. He didn't write them. He wrote for the publisher who did those men's action-adventure series. He wrote these Ludlam-esque kind of thrillers, and the publisher came to him and asked him if he'd write a men's action-adventure series. And he said he wasn't young enough stupid enough or desperate enough to write one of these. But you were. But he knew somebody was, yeah, and he, and he recommended me. So um, I wrote the books under the pseudonym Ian Ludlow. Ian for Ian Fleming and Ludlow for Robert Ludlow, who was the biggest-selling author in America at the time. I thought people would be going to the shelf to see his books anyway, and he always had hammers and sickles and Doric columns and stuff on the covers of his books, and I'd have tits and explosions and, and sports cars, and I figured I could get more readers that way. And I also figured people would go, Ian Ludlow. You know, I think I read yeah, something by Yeah, him. I think I read his stuff, yeah. <clears throat> and the book did really well. Um, the first book was a huge bestseller. It, came out, it was called 357 Vigilante. Right. And it came out the same week this guy Bernard Getz blew away some muggers on a New York subway train. So Vigilantes were very hot. New World Pictures bought the movie rights, hired me to write the script, and my career was born. Wow. That's amazing. I also liked how you got uh, to do Spencer for Hire. Yeah, Spencer for Hire, I, uh, I actually uh. kind of ripped off my own vigilante novels. I had this uh, fraud vigilante author who was going around um, with a best-selling novel that we completely made up, and he's the antithesis of Spencer. Spencer's in a bookstore um, trying to buy him books, and someone takes a shot at this vigilante, and Spencer gets shot in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> That'll teach him. <laughs> so I wrote this as a spec script and sent it into. Uh, the producers of Spencer, and they bought it and shot it and hired me to write four more episodes. God, what a way to get started. Nice. 
Mer- and there's also, you know, the fact that I was dealing cocaine and I was a male hooker. But other than that, yeah, it was definitely. all the writing. That's all the writing. Yeah. It's all in the writing. Yeah, well, you know, don't quit your day job. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. I spent a lot of time doing research on those first two, but I didn't quite make it to the third. But that's all right. So now that you're uh, investing your incredible and prodigious talents in characters of your own creation, although you have brought uh, Ian Ludlow, uh, (laughs) Mr. Jury, back somewhat. I used the name. I wrote a very successful book a few years ago called True Fiction about a thriller author whose, whose books start kind of coming true. And he finds himself having to be the action hero that he, he writes about. And I made the character Ian Ludlow, just as a joke to myself, sort of an in-joke for anybody who's followed my career. And uh, it was great fun. That, that book is, has done very well. The uh, TV, I can't reveal more details than this, but the TV rights were recently optioned, and a pilot script is being written for a major network, not by me, but by other folks. That's and, why, why weren't you asked to write the pilot for your own thingy? Because I'm an old fart who's, who's finished in the business. Yeah, that <laughs> explains it. I have a realistic notion of where I fit in the firmament of Hollywood these days. Let's leave it this way. I have a series on Hallmark. That's how old I am. Wow. But, um, no, I, I can't say that Joshua Molina from the West Wing is attached to star as Ian Ludlow. Well, that's a good deal. But, you know, who knows what will happen? Most of these things never happen. Yes, I noticed. Please <laughs> yeah. take a look at my career and you'll see. I'd like to talk about uh, your new, your latest series and Eve Ronan. Yeah, the series began a year ago with a book, almost dropped the phone there, with a book called Lost Hills. Um, she's the youngest female homicide detective in the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, a, a job she doesn't deserve and got by virtue of a, a viral video taken of her when she was a deputy face-planting a Hollywood star who was abusing his, his girlfriend, and she was able to leverage that publicity into this promotion she doesn't deserve, and find herself solving a very horrible murder case. But she does it well, and um, now in the second novel, Bone Canyon, although she's proven herself as a detective, she's still facing a lot of distrust and opposition within the sheriff's department, and she still is her own worst enemy. And I'm... And Lost Hills is a police procedural, so is the new novel, Bone Canyon, which is coming out June 5th, excuse me, January 5th, and um, both books were, are, are based on, on reality. For Lost Hills, I was the only civilian attending a homicide investigator's training conference, and I learned about a case at that conference that I couldn't get out of my head, and I ended up having, that became the inspiration for the book Lost Hills, and then um, I live in Calabasas, and there were some... The Woolsey Fire, horrible fire happened here, and in the wake of the Woolsey Fire and all the foliage burning, a lot of bodies were discovered. Bodies yeah, that's been... the uh, that's the true crime connection here, Tim. That's yeah, a, so, so a... it was from that I got the inspiration for for my second book, and I, I talked to a lot of detectives and forensic anthropologists, and then I went off and I um, spent some time with a forensic anthropologist. And, uh, I mean, most of the book is fiction, but it has an underlying foundation of reality in that I did a, a, a great deal of research uh, to inform the book. Now, um, when you about the whole last second, the, the reality-based part, when that vegetation burned down, were there a lot of bodies found, or just one or two? Or No, there were quite a few, surprisingly. I mean, I'm going to get some of these facts wrong, but they found, I think, half a dozen gang members that had been killed elsewhere, their bodies dumped in the canyon over a period of years. Because the bodies got stuck in the foliage, no one noticed them. 
And when the foliage burned away, the bones rolled into the canyon floors, into people's backyards oh, or on the roadways and things. So wow. um, some of the bones were many, many years old. Some were more recent. But they also found there was a, a woman with Alzheimer's who'd wandered away from the library, excuse me, the museum on um, Wilshire Boulevard, County Museum, and they found her body in the canyon. Don't know how it got there. They found a couple who had disappeared years ago driving home from LAX and they never got home. They found their car in the bottom of a canyon. They even found plane records, wreckage they weren't sure was whether from a real plane or maybe from a movie shoot many years ago. But they wow. found all kinds of things. In, in the canyons and mountains of uh, you know, Malibu and Santa Monica that were revealed by all this foliage burning away. Wow. Fascinating. <clears throat> that is fascinating and a great setup for your novel. Yeah, I mean, I, I really, it was perfect because Lost Hills had ended with a cataclysmic fire roaring through the Santa Monica mountains that was entirely fictional. And then that actual fire happened in reality ah, actually it was, followed the it's all your fault it's all your fault yeah, <laughs> yeah it, was, it was uncanny I, I the fire was licking my back fence here in calabasas i had to evacuate um to santa clarita and i was sitting in santa clarita proofing my uh, my novel when the real fire was going on it was so weird yeah. um at least i saw i got it right um yeah. I, <laughs> why did you uh, why don't you pick a female protagonist I did it for a couple reasons. One, because I wrote 15 Monk novels based on the TV series Monk, first person from his female assistant's point of view. And I really like being in that voice. The other reason is I, I'm so tired of the middle-aged homicide detective who's an alcoholic or a heroin addict or whatever, and he's haunted by some horrible tragedy, the serial killer who murdered his family or horrible war experiences, and he's divorced, and he's brilliant, but his superiors don't trust him, and he's very self-confident, and it's, I've, it's been done to death and done so well. Um, I didn't want to do that again. And also, for the sake of this story, i got, I got to go backwards a little bit. The case I learned about it, that homicide uh, investigators training conference was a case presented to show how important it is to go to a crime scene as a virgin to to look at each homicide as if you've never investigated a homicide before that there is no common sense there you can't walk in the door with experience and homicide investigators common sense or you will not solve the case and this case proved the point that if you've gone in there with your common assumptions about homicides, it would never have been solved. Uh -huh. thought, oh, this is a great case. I could see how I could fictionalize it, but how do I have a detective come in here and, and not have that experience uh, overshadowing his work? Well, have someone who's an amateur come in. Well, how can you be an amateur and investigate a high-profile high homicide like this? So I, the character kind of arose from the case. I, I came up with a situation where I'd have a, a homicide investigator who was absolutely green, who was... It, forced to, to solve this case that was way beyond her abilities and she discovers she has an innate skill for it but she makes huge mistakes throughout that case and in fact in my second book which picks up just a few weeks after the first case she's still making mistakes and that's one of the things I really like about this character is that she isn't perfect she, she isn't experienced, she is making big mistakes and she isn't a middle aged man, she's a, a young woman in her 20s and it also forced me to write from a whole different perspective and to scare myself a little bit. And 
And I come from a family of strong women, and I'm always upset with the way I see women portrayed in these kinds of books, particularly when men write them. So it was my chance to also tackle that. Yeah, well, that's that's a common um, knock against men who write women characters. They just don't. They yeah. just don't do it correctly. Yeah, amazingly enough, Lee's write- good at it, and I've also received compliments. If I may brag, but on the same thing, I wonder if it's a, a a common denominator of writers who have grown up in the presence of strong women. It's, I think it's also strong women, but also you know, my life now. I'm I'm been married for thirty over thirty years. I've got a twenty five year old daughter. I've got two sisters. Uh, I've been a, I was raised by a single mother. I've I've been around a lot of women, and it would be hard not to be influenced by them. But my wife, I think. Which is I was more like the authorial voice that she, or, <laughs> <laughs> seems to understand one over your shoulder going Lee. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one of your uh, one of your frequent collaborators, uh, Janet Ivanovich, of the Stephanie Plum series. Um, did you did you learn anything working from her how to voice a female character? No, I, I didn't learn anything from her about writing a female character. I learned a lot from her about writing in general, and about writing thrillers. I, I learned so much about how to, it was like, a, I, I hate to use the term master class, but I, I really felt like I got an education how to be a best-selling author. And, and thanks to her, I, I did reach number one on the New York Times bestseller list a couple times. And, and I think I owe her in many ways for why my last two books were so wildly successful uh, commercially, because she taught me how to be much more economical in my writing and to put, to, to basically make the authorial voice disappear, to, to make it so the reader forgets their reading and that the author disappears, is invisible. And they're just, the reader's just being carried along by the characters and what they're saying and doing. And that's a lot harder than it sounds. Yeah. Because there's a real temptation, particularly among relatives of mine who are on the show right now, to, <laughs> to overwrite. How clever you are in your writing, you know, to, to, to make a clever metaphor, or make a joke or a description or whatever. And it just pulls people out. I, it's not to say I don't do it. I do it in my Ian Ludlow books to a degree. Um, but I don't ever do it in the Eve Ronins. The Eve Ronin novels are just the facts, ma'am. And if I write something clever, if I write something funny, I cut it. Or I put it in the mouth of one of the characters. The only time the authorial voice appears in my first two Ronan books, arguably, is in the first two paragraphs of each book, just to set the scene. But otherwise, I, um, I, I, I just keep it straightforward. I, I, I write it as tight as I possibly can. I spent a lot of my rewriting cutting in those two books to make sure that they were as lean as they could possibly be. Um, I do a tremendous amount of technical writing, large technical documents for the computer science uh, business, and that is also a uh, a requirement. You 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 look you look at what you've written, and you decide how much of it can be thrown away. You change your subject uh, and your predicate around so your sentences are short and to the point. Get your get get the information across as quickly as possible, as leanly as possible. So there's so they're not spending so much time trying to interpret meaningless fluff. I guess it's similar because I noticed reading uh, Janet Ivanovich's work and reading yours, 
and I sort of sort of slap myself. Unfortunately, fortunately or unfortunately, I guess career-wise, because I mean it has worked out okay for me, <laughs> despite all that, is I was greatly influenced by authors who overwrote. Yes, Leslie Charteris is a great overwriter. Yeah, and that's what I, people I, pay for. That's what he said that people pay for. It's like fins on a Cadillac. The intentional overwriting. I enjoyed it as a kid, but now I find, to be honest with you, I find his writing cringe-inducing. It's just, it's too, look at me, aren't I clever with my turn of the phrase. And it pulls you away from the story. It pulls you away from the escape. I, I mean, there's some enjoyment to it, of course, to a clever writing and uh, a clever turn of the phrase. I don't, wanna, I don't want to demean great writing, but there are also times where it's too much of, hey, look at me, and it's the author showing off. And when it's, when it's that, it's, it's it, it, it does not, in today's world, lead to becoming a best-selling author. If you look at Michael Connolly and John Grisham and Harlan Coben and, and Lee Child, they have a real, not intentionally, but there's a formula to the way they write. A real clean, crisp, straightforward approach to writing that I think is very... Um, it's not junk food, but it, 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 it's very easy to absorb, to read on the run. It doesn't take a lot of thought. You can set the book aside for a day and pick up where you left off without being lost. It's, it's, um, it's a skill, and it's very, very hard. It's so like James Garner was always being accused of playing himself because his acting was so relaxed. And he would say, you don't understand how hard it is to, to, to create that, that illusion that what I'm doing is casual and easy. I think Tom Hanks is the same way. And I think Janet Ivanovich works her ass off to achieve that that voice. It's interesting. Frank Gerardo, uh, who co-authors some of my true crime books, and we're working on one right now, as a matter of fact, when we uh, wrote uh, Taste for Murder, we sat down and said, okay, how are we going to do this? And we don't sit in the same room and write together at all, but it, the book did very, very well and continues to do well. And same with Betrayal in Blue. We decided, it's kind of a compromise between the two things we're talking about. We decided to tell the story as if we're sitting with you and you want to hear a story. Say, okay, we're going to tell you a story. And so there are elements where we're telling you the story. We're obviously telling you a story. So there is, which is different than a novel. And yet it's going to move at a certain pace that's quick. It doesn't have to be 100,000 words for a true crime book. It can be 55,000, like a mystery. And no one had done that before. And much to our delight, with very few exceptions critically, it worked and continues to work. Either they go, wow, I love the way this was written. It's like two guys telling me a story. Or they go, why are these guys throwing in every once in a while little, you know, little asides, etc." Uh, I think it's kind of a compromise between those two stylistic things and hadn't been done in true crime before and therefore worked. Uh, as far as uh, my penchant for overwriting, I figured, well, if I tell the story in the first person, if it's a novel, maybe I can get away with it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> which, which I've tried that technique. But um, you're doing very well with this, uh, shall we say, lean yet taut well, I've, I've been trying to um, alternate. I've been doing two books a year, one in the Ian Ludlow series where I, I don't have that restraint. I, I do have a more colorful, authorial voice, and they're over-the-top you know, international thrillers. And then the Ian 
uh, the Iranians that are very straightforward police procedurals with some humor, but written in a very tight manner. And I'm you know, sitting here thinking about what my next book's going to be, and I, I haven't decided yet, but I'll have to make a choice about what the voice will be. Will it be the Eve Ronan tight, lean um, procedural voice, or will it be the more authorial um, voice of, of the Ian Ludlow books where, where the author has an attitude? Um, it's, it's difficult to make that decision. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, I noticed that uh, Eve's last name is Ronan. Is that a coincidence, or was there a direct connection to the Japanese legend? Samurai oh, it's just a direct connection, obviously. It's no, it's no coincidence. But there is a story behind it that I wrote for both the first book and the second, and even the third book's finished and will be coming out uh, next fall, that I keep cutting. I mean, I keep putting it in the book, and I keep cutting it. Um, in the book, Eve Ronan's mother is a struggling actress who basically has made a living being a background extra. You know, the person in the background who says nothing, just walks across the camera or right. hands the hero a folder. And her maiden name, her, her original name was Ronan, R-O-N-A-N, but she thought if she changed it to Ronan, it would be sexier and get her more jobs, which is how you even it up with the, with the name. But you know, obviously I chose Ronan and Eve, you know, from Adam and Eve. She's, she's a loner. She's on her own. She's having to prove herself. She's a, a warrior. She never backs down. It's, it's not a coincidence at all. I, I chose the name for a bunch of symbolic purposes. It reminds me of the character of the forthcoming sequel to... Uh my book, Headlock, which I think needs a new title, where the woman has an affair with the entire uh, electrician's union in Hollywood in a failed attempt to look brighter on screen. Boy, I have to sit next to this every, every Saturday. That's an example of the kind of clever writing I'm talking about. <laughs> yes, I know. Boy. Couldn't resist. But there, that, there's a plot point. <laughs> So this you you you've written two. You have a third coming out. How, do you have um, a a, uh, a development uh, trajectory for Eve personally and professionally as the books go on? Yes, I do. But I also have to be aware of critical and popular response. The, in the two Eve Ronan books, the first one that, that came out last year, the one that's coming out in, the, in a couple weeks. The response I've gotten to her partner, a guy named Duncan Pavone, uh, Duncan Donuts is his, his <laughs> nickname. He's, he's overweight. He's, he's in his late 50s. He's literally days away from retirement and doesn't give a shit. And the, the response I've gotten to Duncan from Lost Hills was so strong. Everyone loved him. And then all the people who've read Bone Canyon so far, authors who blurbed it, critics, friends, family, they all love Duncan as well. So I, I, I keep putting off his, his retirement. <laughs> so keep the character, keep the character. Well, these books are taking place within days of each other because I, I started a definite clock on the first book. So, you know, I was able to get him to through a third book, and now I'm, I'm kind of not sure what I'm going to do with the fourth because uh, I, I had not planned to have him in the second book. I planned to have him retired out and uh, a new partner for Eve, but the response to that character was so strong that um, uh, and my publisher was like, no, no, you can't, you can't get rid of him. So I, I, I've kept him along. So that kind of changed my trajectory. But also each time I write about Eve, I find out new things about her or she'll do things that surprise me. I write with an outline. I know where I'm going. But even so, I'll be writing, and sometimes she will say things or do things that I wasn't consciously 
expecting. And I'll sometimes ride with it and keep it in the book, and other times I will cut it. It's going in a direction I don't like or whatever. But I'll, I'll let it play out if I'm having a run with it whenever I'm writing. But um, so I let I let the, the character dictate some of the, some things. I don't I don't stick to my plans uh, religiously. Um, a book I wrote many years ago, My Gun Has Bullets, there was a character that was supposed to die in Chapter 1. But I liked him so much, I kept him alive in Chapter 2. And I still liked him. I ended up keeping him alive for the whole damn book, and it made it so hard. I had to replot everything. It was just, I, I couldn't bear to kill him. I just I enjoyed writing that character too much. And I, I guess it's a, it's, a, it's a two-edged sword. You write a character people really like, so you have to you have to keep them. Um, I did the same thing with a book I wrote called True Fiction. I had a character that was only meant for that book. In fact, the book was not meant to be a series. It was meant to be a standalone thriller. But it was such a huge success. It was the number one book on Amazon for 15 straight days a couple years ago when it when it came out. That of course Amazon immediately demanded two sequels. I, I should I should mention that Amazon is my publisher. These books are not self-published. Amazon has their own publishing imprints, Thomas and Mercer for Mysteries, 47 North for Science Fiction, um, Lake Union for uh, for Literary Fiction, Montlake for Romance, and uh, my books are published in hardcover, paperback, audio, and ebook by Amazon Publishing's Thomas and Mercer imprint. And so they asked for two more books with the characters from True Fiction, including the one that... Uh, yes, you want dead. That I didn't want to ever see again, so... Actually, I didn't have him in the second book, and readers are really pissed, so I put this other character back in for the third one. I ran into a similar thing with a character from Headlock called Lightning Rod Sullivan, who is a uh, a wrestler who had very bad, brittle bones from having done so many steroids. And he used expressions like, you know, Christ in a boxcar, you know, weird, strange exclamations. I had the guy supposedly die in the first novel, but he was one of the favorite characters that I heard about people like, oh, I sure hope Lightning Rod Sullivan's in the sequel. Fortunately, I didn't have him graphically die in the first one, just that the character heard he had died <laughs> so I could bring him back in the second one. Well, this happens all the time in TV. You know, Christopher Lloyd was a guest shot on Taxi. They liked his character so much that they kept him for for quite a few episodes. It's Many times you have a guest character take on a life of his or her own and become a regular on the show or become a bigger part as time goes on or even take over the show like Fonzie and Happy Days. Right. Where, uh, you know, a supporting character becomes the lead. And you know, I've had it in, in every series I've done to some degree. There's always been a character that... Uh, it happened in that show Murphy's Law. We had a character appear in one episode, uh, a sleazy detective named Victor Bodine, and... and uh, <laughs> He played by Charles Rocket, and we ended up having him, I think, in nine of the 13 episodes. He was he was great. Now, what about Sammy? I remember Sammy uh, from the Spencer uh, years. Yeah, he was, the, he was the vigilante character played by Sal Viscuso in that spec episode of Spencer I wrote. And the reaction to that character was so strong, they asked us to do a, that's me and my then-writing partner, William Rapkin, to do a sequel, and we did. And then they asked us to do a third uh, episode with him, but at that point the show was canceled and that episode third one was not shot. Oh, that's too <clears> bad. <throat> there are challenges to writing for television. <coughs> Excuse me. I remember I was with you when you had an episode that was supposed to take place on the beach in the ocean and for whatever reason, weather or something, you had to take place in a swimming pool. Yep, I've had that happen to me many times. I had a 
episode of a, a terrible series called Cobra starring Michael Dudikoff that where he was undercover with this corrupt military base and it, it was the big finale was going to be in the forest with the military and tanks and soldiers it was it was wonderful except we had a blizzard roll in <laughs> and we had to shoot in the only standing set we had at the time which was a high school gymnasium Oh, wonderful. So the big finale of our show was in a high school gymnasium. And, and it happened to me on, on Diagnosis Murder. We had uh, an episode about the attempted murder of a British royal. And we already cast it. It was going to star Victoria Tennant as the, as the British royal. And um, we were going to start shooting on a Monday. And if I remember right, on a Thursday, Princess Diana was killed. Oops. So we had to rewrite the whole episode without changing any of the sets or any of the actors, because we already cast them. We were shooting on Monday. We just had to tell a new story with the same cast on the same set without any British royal. And I mean, this sort of thing happens all the time in television because you're trying to tell a fictional story on a stage that's real. So you have weather, you have all kinds of things that go wrong, you lose a location for whatever reason, and you just have to scramble. So if you're a television or movie professional, you often can see it. I mean, you watch a movie or TV show and you can tell, oh, they must have lost the location or this actor got sick or you, you can see the bad continuity jump and it was, you know, nonsensical writing issue. It's like, okay, this, this is a production issue. That reminds me of, uh, of the stuntman, Peter O'Toole, the Ray's, movie. Uh, Rails Back. You know, <clears throat> we, you know, we have to get this scene before, you know, before the sun goes down. Are you familiar with that film, Stunman, Peter yes, O'Toole? Yes, I am. It's a great movie. Yeah. Yeah. The soundtrack is fantastic. Well, I have the, the whole film Yeah, it's fantastic. Uh, Railsbeck's a fascinating guy. I spent an afternoon with him a few years ago. What a character. Uh, so we're talking about your TV writing career. It's a visual medium that you're writing for. Uh, do you find that that has influenced your novels? Without doubt. Absolutely. I've, all, this, all the tricks I've learned from television, I apply to my novel writing, and it's made my novels better. Because in television, everything happens by virtue of what people say and do. There's no exposition. There's no, you're not inside people's head. If you don't see it or hear it, it doesn't exist. And uh, also in TV, you have, what, 44 minutes or 42 minutes to tell your story? Right. You have to move the story along. If a scene does not reveal character or push the plot forward, it goes. If a scene doesn't have conflict, it goes. So I apply those same lessons to writing my books. Also, television is written in the four-act structure, and it's sort of internalized in all of us, viewers and writers. If, if a show doesn't have that four-act structure, for whatever reason, it doesn't feel right to you as a viewer. You're expecting intuitively these certain peaks and valleys and climaxes and, and cliffhangers, and if they aren't there, the show doesn't satisfy, regardless of the genre. And I apply the four-act structure to my books as well. And I think it makes them that much more digestible, that much more <laughs> propulsive. That most of my books are dialogue-driven and action. By action, I don't mean car chases and fist fights and sex. I just mean forward motion, people doing things, people who are active, not reactive. So yes, I'm, and and I think that's why most of my books end up getting, if not shot, um, option for television or film because they are visual in the way they're written. Uh, how do you how do you keep these stories uh, from uh, being too dark? I mean, you you, you have a kind of a, a macabre sense of humor to to your material, and I was just curious. 
Because I believe even in the darkest of situations, there's always humor. I mean, I've never had a horrible thing happen to me that didn't have something funny happening at the same time. Um, I mean, I, I can use a, a, um, a good example. Um, when my mother, Earl's sister, passed away, the whole family was together with her in the hospital. You know, she passed away uh, very, very gently. And the, um, the minister, whatever you call it, the, the clergy person in the hospital right. came in and asked us if we would like a prayer. And we're not a religious family, but we do like to hedge our bets. So my <laughs> sister Karen said, yes, yes, please. So, so the guy said a few words over mom, you know, gave up Jesus this, God that, <laughs> gave, his, gave his speech. And when he was done, there was a moment of silence. And then he turned to my sister and said, so, so how was that? She said, it was very nice. Thank you. And he goes, yes, yes. <laughs> they started doing this victory dance around the hospital room in front of me and my brother and my two sisters. Oh, my God. And, and we're staring at him. He's, oh, excuse me. I'm sorry. I've been away for three years on a sabbatical. I was afraid I lost my mojo, but I've still got, got it. it. Oh, my God. You guys have been great. Oh, no. Sorry for your loss. Yes. And he walked out. Oh, my God. We all broke into laughter. My brother Todd said, I've got dibs on this for writing about it. <laughs> but we realized mom would have loved it. Oh, yes, she would what have. a perfect way for her to go. It was absolutely fitting. It was the right moment. It was funny in a sad moment, but it was true. And I, I can give you another example. I, I had a, a bad accident a few years ago, and I broke both of my arms at once. One one arm very severely had to have multiple surgeries on the arm, but I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm in the uh, I'm in the hospital room in the ER, and, and the and the emergency room doctor tells my wife that your husband has two broken arms, and um, he's gonna have a very difficult time for a while. And my wife goes, "Okay." And the doctor says, "I don't think you understand. Your husband has two broken arms. They're gonna both in casts. It'll be like being in a straitjacket. He's not gonna be able to do anything for himself." And my wife said, "Okay." And actually, I don't think you're getting this. <laughs> He's going to be incapacitated. He will not be able to do anything for himself. There's this long silence. My wife said, would it be possible for him to go on a liquid diet? <laughs> and I'm in the ER. I start laughing. <laughs> she wanted the doctor to prescribe a liquid diet for me because she didn't have to wipe my ass for six months. <laughs> And so there you are in a horrible situation, but there's, there's humor. So I've always made sure that in all my books and my TV shows, no matter what I'm doing, there's always humor. Not inappropriate humor, not, not humor that pulls you away from the moment, but humor, I think, has the ability to humanize a situation, to invest the reader or viewer in the story you're telling. Well, I, got, I, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with this one, Lee, but your Uncle Stan... Stanley Bear, he's been on the show. Uh, he had uh, cancer, prostate cancer, had surgery. And the doctor comes in and telling him, you know, he's going to recover from this. And he says, if you plan on having sex with your wife, have sex with her on top. And my brother thinks this over for a moment and says, can you write me a prescription? <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was, yep, <laughs> there you go. Another perfect example. <clears throat> so uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but... You're wrong. Oh, stop. 
Um, we've you know we've talked about uh, your writing career. You you were writing for Monk. I personally didn't like the character. He made me twitch, and I wanted to strangle him. <laughs> to which, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I have a feeling Eve would have the same reaction to Monk and probably would have just shot him. Yes. <laughs> He's right. He's right. Yes. We're but taking... here's the other thing, uh, joking aside, they exist in two different universes. The Monk character would not exist in the Eve universe because... Monk is in a world of its own. Every time you write a, a, a TV show or a book, you're creating a universe with its own set of rules. In the world of Monk, there is no chain of evidence. There are no forensics. You solve a crime purely on behavior and observation and deduction. You don't worry about fingerprints or crime scenes or any of that stuff. I mean, Monk, in the TV show Monk, you had a guy with obsessive compulsive disorder Tromping all over a crime scene. Yep. And every crime he solved, 90% of the crimes, the evidence wouldn't hold up in court because it's all observational and situational. And you always had the captain of detectives and lieutenant investigating every every situation. You never saw anyone from crimes uh, from a forensic CSI side. CSI or anything. Like and rarely was there any coroners or anything involved, or a courtroom, or a judge, or anything involving the actual law. And. But that's fine, because every show, whether it's CSI, where you know, have a stupid universe where crime scene analysts are carrying guns and driving chrome-plated Hummers and you know, wearing designer clothes and solving crimes and doing interrogations, every show creates its own universe. But when a show violates its own rules, it, that's the time it, quote, unquote, jumps the shark. It does something that violates its own franchise, its own rules of the universe. Eve Ronan series is set in a fairly realistic world. So a character like Monk wouldn't be allowed anywhere near a crime scene. <laughs> yeah. In, in, in Eve's world, you know, in, in the world I create. But by the same token, if I brought Eve Ronan into Monk's world, she'd be a comic relief character. She'd be an exasperation. She'd be someone who just doesn't get it. You know, she'd, she'd be a conflict point for Monk. And, it, and it actually, come to think of it, I did bring, in a sense, Eve Ronan into the Monk world. Um, it's a long story, but I brought in a character in the Monk books named Amy Devlin, who, when the Randy Disher character uh, left the show, uh, it's a long story. But in any case... Well, we, uh, had her on the, we had her here on the show once. So I, I had a, I've had a tougher, I added a tougher character to, um, to the Monk stories to, to create more conflict. But no, they would not. They would not uh, get along. She would. She would punch him in the face. I don't know if you and I were on the. You and I have done several panels together at BoucherCon, you know, World Mystery Convention. I always once. What was it? T.J. Parker or somebody? That's the best, best program I've ever seen. We had no idea what he was talking about. But uh, I was on a panel. If you were on it or not, it was about forensics. At that time, my Saint novel had just come out. I said, in Saint novels, forensics don't exist. <laughs> in that world, we don't even discuss that. Fingerprints, any of that stuff. You know, that's just, that's not what that world is. So I don't, I'm not concerned about it when I write the same books. Yeah, forensics, uh, oddly enough, I was at a conference, I can't remember which one, um, speaking on a panel, and a guy came up to me and introduced himself that he was a coroner 
our medical examiner in, in some major city, and he handed me his card. He said, would I be interested in speaking at, the, at this big conference of medical examiners? And I went, but I don't know anything about forensics. And he said, no, no, you'd be wonderful, but I don't know a thing. He said, but would you, would you entertain the offer if it came? I went, yeah, sure, whatever. Sure enough, I got invited to this conference of medical examiners in Las Vegas, and I, I just I felt like a, a complete fraud. I, I didn't know what the hell I was to talk about. And they sort of talk about how you use forensics in, in the television shows and books you write. So I ended up doing the speech, and, and, and they were laughing their asses off, and I thought they were laughing at me. Oh, my God. I'm a, and, and afterward, the organizer said, oh, thank you. That was wonderful. What are you talking about? I was just going to fool myself. No, no, you understand. We're dealing with such dark, horrible stuff all day long. And that was just a nice release. And then afterward, I got invited to another forensics conference in Pittsburgh. The Cyril Wecht Institute or something invited me out to speak. And as, as a bonus, I got to attend all of the seminars free that they were doing that week um, while I was there. And it was glorious hell, but God, it was fantastic. And again, I did the same speech, and I ended up doing a third one of these for a, a, a medical examiner uh, conference. So, you know, for me, it allowed me to attend a bunch of seminars that ordinarily a civilian wouldn't be allowed to attend. And for them, it just gave them, you know, essentially a song and dance routine over lunch. You know, yeah. something that just distracted them from uh, the, the, the scientific stuff they were hearing all day long. Yeah, so was, our uh, friend uh, Steve Jackson, who uh, has Wild Blue Press, who I write for, uh, he was going to Russia, you know, digging up bones of uh, the czar or whatever. Fascinating stuff. Uh, far too technical for me. But uh, for those who are into it, boy, they really get into it. I was at a, a homicide. I've not done a few of these. Uh, been to homicide investigator training conferences, and I was at one of them, and it was dark in the room and they're presenting a case and I had lots of questions so I asked them you know, and they can't tell in the dark who I am <laughs> I'm asking all these questions and at lunch I went up to the presenter and asked him more questions he said you know, your questions were great um, what agency are you with? And I said, I'm a senior agent with the WGA. <laughs> and he said, what's the WGA? I said, Writers Guild of America. <laughs> You're a fucking writer? I went, yeah. How the hell did you get in here? And I pointed to the guy who's running the conference, who just sort of smiled. And the instructor went, well, if he likes you, then so do I. Keep asking those questions. If you ever get a chance to meet Brent Turvey, don't pass up the opportunity. He is one of the, the great guys at solving cases and investigating cases and telling what crime scenes are fake crime scenes where the perpetrator has purposely done things to mislead you if you're investigating the crime scene. Fascinating guy with a fabulous sense of humor. You two would get along famously. So if you ever get, ever see his name crop up with something, uh, don't miss the chance to, uh, to hear him or spend time with him. You'll be fascinated. He's a brilliant guy. Brent Turvey. Had him on the show a couple times. You have the third book uh, coming out uh, in spring next year. Uh, do you have a fourth one in mind? I do have one in mind, but no contract yet. Ooh. I guess a lot depends on how uh, Bone Canyon does in January. But this is the first time in my life, I should say my life, the first time in many, many years where I don't have a contract to do anything. 
That's reassuring, isn't it? Mm. It's terrifying. So yeah. I've been looking at Arby's as to see anybody at the counter. But, you know, we have this pandemic going on, so that's not a real option. Yeah, that's kind of messed with some things. Uh, you may have, as I did, had some projects that were supposed to go to screen, a small or large, uh, that evaporated. Oh, yes, I did. I, um, I wrote, I should say I co-wrote, two Darrow and Darrow um, movies with my good friend Steve Sutton. They were supposed to shoot back-to-back in April in Vancouver. Naturally, that didn't happen. Right. Don't know when it will. Um, and uh, I, I created a TV series on, on Hallmark called Mystery 101. I don't have anything to do, really, with the, with the show. I wrote the pilot, and they've done five... Uh, it's a series of movies. I wrote the first movie. They've done five others. And I, was, I wrote the sixth that's supposed to shoot uh, during the pandemic, and it didn't. But they did just shoot a sixth movie, but it wasn't mine. So... Um, you get created by credit on that? Of course. Yay. <laughs> That's all important. Of course. Now, Roy Huggins, who created uh, 77 Sunset Strip with his uh, Stuart Bailey short stories that were written, what, 1947, that uh, when it went to Warner's to be a TV series, of course, it had a pilot first called Anything for Money, as you probably remember. Uh, they had to find a way of him not getting created by credit. <laughs> Which I thought was kind of tragic. Well, I, luckily we have a writer's guild that protects us. Yeah. And I, I didn't create the show on my own. I co-created it with a good friend of mine, Robin Bernheim. We wrote this uh, movie together, and it was a big hit, but uh, we were not, we've not been involved in the subsequent uh, sequels. Well, better something than nothing, especially, yeah. especially in these pandemic days. There, are there any buzz to take Eve to television or movies? Yes. I, I can't. I can't talk about it because I've signed a non-disclosure agreement. But I can tell you that a major production company and a one of the big networks they they are developing it right now. In fact, there was a pilot script order a couple weeks ago, and um, you know, I'm, again, I'm trying to ignore it because these things often don't happen. But it could become a series next fall. I, mean, yeah. they, they like I got it. a thing. It's over there. It's I can't there. talk about it. Yeah. And that's always kind of the strange, bizarre thing about this this business is I've several times been in that situation where, oh, they're going to do a pilot, they're going to do a series, they're the going to do this. Yeah, your saint stories. Well, no, that, not only that, but on the uh, the Headlock character, uh, there was great interest in doing that as a uh, that series. And oh, there was all these meetings and talks and this, that, and the other thing, and well, I always warn friends of mine, don't get excited when your book gets optioned by Hollywood because yeah. 9.9 times out of 10, it doesn't happen. Just, you know, enjoy the ride. And I, I'm in the unique situation if I have a lot of television and film experience. And what I tell the producers is, I'll be as involved or uninvolved as you want me to be. You know, if you just want to send me a check and never hear from me, I'm Fine. glad. Yeah. If you want me to be involved, I'll be involved. So what did, uh, what did Phil Champagne from the uh, counterfeit resurrection of Phil Champagne say when he was told that they were interested in his story? I don't care if they make me a cartoon mouse. Just write me a check. That's the right attitude. Um, <laughs> Kathy Reichs, who um, created the Temperance Brennan character, uh, a forensic anthropologist, very successful series of novels, was developed for television by a writer-producer named Hart Hansen, and he made massive changes. He added a new character who was an FBI agent, and he, he just he changed everything. And he turned to the TV series Bones. That show ran for 12 years. Wow. 
and made Kathy Reichs a multi-zillionaire. Does she care the series bore no. resemblance to her books? No. 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 Not one bit. And I feel the same way. If they want to make Eve Ronan into an animated gerbil uh, who solves crimes in the future, I'm all for it. Oh, yeah. Just send the <clears throat> to, uh, checks. To paraphrase, your name is Lee Goldberg, the nephew of our host, the imaginary Burl Bear. That's right. The book is Bone Canyon coming out January 5th. Hey, Pearl. Yeah. What's next? Magic Matt Allen of the Deepest Executives live from the Lighting Up Lounge at OutlawRadioLive.com. 